Hi there, this is Voicebox. I'm Chloe Veltman. Thanks for joining me. The idea that a child might write and produce an opera seems inconceivable to most of us, but Mozart was just 12 years old when he wrote his first opera, La Finta Semplice, The Pretended Simpleton, in 1769, from which this aria is taken. Okay, so the precociously talented Mozart has nothing in common with the average grade school student developing his or her musical skills today. Or does he? Granted, very few kids share Mozart's mad talent, but thanks to recently developed approaches to music education that put kids at the centre of the creative process, as well as a gradual shift that seems to be taking place in terms of how people view the role of the arts in education, children even younger than 12 are getting not only to write their own operas, but also produce and perform in them too. On tonight's show, we're going to explore the singing landscape for kids today and look in particular at some of the more immersive singing experiences that are currently out there. We'll also think about the latest research on children's vocal music education and find out whether it plays as important a role in child development as arts institutions and some educators and politicians insist it does. To help us explore this topic, I'm lucky to be joined in the studio by Ruth Knott, who heads up the San Francisco Opera's education programmes, and Erin Bregman, who is the founder and director of the Little Opera Company, an organisation based in the Bay Area that works with children aged between 6 and 10 on creating opera productions from scratch. Hi, thanks for joining me, both of you. Thank you. Hi. Also joining us on the phone from the UK is Graham Welch, Professor and Chair of Music Education at the Institute of Education, University of London. Graham runs a large music education research centre and has been researching singing development in children for more than 30 years. Hi Graham, thanks for being on the end of the line. Delighted to be here. So let's start our investigation with a visit to the Little Opera Company. Our reporter, Rachel Hamburg, recently caught up with Erin and her group of young devos and divas at one of their workshop sessions. Here's what she found out. I think adults come to it thinking that it's a completely elite art form. And I think children approach everything with a degree of curiosity that leaves them way more open to the possibility that it could be for them. <laughs> My name is Erin Bregman, and I run Little Opera. What is Little Opera? Little Opera is an all-kids opera company where we take small groups of kids and lead them through the whole opera creation process. You get to perform and you make the opera up yourself. My original idea was what if we do, what if we create a children's theatre company where the kids are actually making everything for other kids instead of adult artists making it for kids. I thought that would probably result in much more interesting pieces. But then I realized that kids aren't naturally that good at standing up on stage and, and speaking. Hello, you look awfully like me. <laughs> what they are naturally really good at is moving their bodies. You can stretch, stretch higher. See if you can grab those ceiling panels. And singing. I am going to play a trick. I am going to play a trick. I'm going to take her home, split her, mess up her garden. That's it. <laughs> 
We talked about what setting was. We brainstormed a bunch of settings. And then the kids got to write down their favorite one on a piece of paper, crumple it up, and throw it at a hat. One actually went in the hat, so that was the setting that we used for this year, which is Candyland. There are lots of candies and things are made of out of candy. After we picked Candyland, we talked a lot about extreme emotions. And we brainstormed a lot of different operatic emotions and, and not operatic emotions. And we did group them from things that we feel every day to things we might feel sometime to things that we might feel once in a lifetime or even never. And those were the ones that we decided were the most operatic. <laughs> I think opera is such a perfect fit for kids because when you're a little kid, every day is the worst day you've ever had or the best day you've ever had or the most disgusting thing you've ever tasted. The idea of extreme emotion, I think, is very, very natural. I think that's exactly where they're operating. A lot of times adults say, oh, opera with kids, really? Do they get it? Is that like weird for them? And it's, it's not. I think adults have a harder time relating to it than kids do because they really understand what it's like to go through extremes and and very quickly move from one extreme to the other. Well, I really really want like I really want to grow up being an actress. I really like, you know, like creating your own stories and acting on stage and making your own costume. It was really fun and I hope it gives me um a head start and hopefully when I grow up I'll be an actress. So last year we had two nights of performance, but they actually got to perform the piece four times. So we did two times on Tuesday night and two times on Thursday night. And the difference between their first performance on Tuesday, which was a very tentative, are we doing this right? Oh, thank goodness it's over kind of performance, to the last performance on Friday, which was just like pure joy and kids improvising and just like the audience interacting in a way that is pretty much like why I get excited about live performance. It was it was like the most fun ever. I actually had some actors in the audience say that they were really excited that it wasn't trying to do adult theater but with kids. It was trying to do kids theater with kids or kids opera with kids, which is which is different because it should be the performance should be all about them and it should be more comfortable, it should be informal, it should be about giving them the opportunity to enjoy sharing the work that they've done. And I think that the setup of professional adult theater is extremely rigid. It's not usually the best showcase of what kids have going for them, which a lot of times is excitement and joy. Maybe. Good thing I have glasses. You have glasses. That's a good I have thing. Glasses. So maybe you have to wipe off your glasses. I think I think it's kind of figuring out how to grow this in a sustainable way and finding the kids who really don't have access to anything like this and finding out how to get them to it. Yeah, I think that's going to be it, because it's definitely not for everyone, but I I wish it could be. One, two, ready, and... Little opera, we act, we dance, we sing. Little opera, where we do everything. Everybody, 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 everybody. Little opera, everybody, everybody. The feature story we just heard about the Little Opera Company was reported and produced by Rachel Hamburg. 
If you've just joined us, welcome. I'm Chloe Veltman and this is Voicebox, public radio's weekly series about the human voice. Voicebox is also available as a free weekly podcast on iTunes and at voicebox-media.org. To find out more about our series, including how to make a much-needed donation to support the project, which is independently produced and non-profit, please visit voicebox-media.org. My guests on tonight's show, all about the latest frontiers of vocal music education for kids, are Erin Bregman of the Little Opera Company, the San Francisco Opera's Ruth Knott, and Graham Welch of the University of London. Erin, what inspired you to start the Little Opera Company? Many things. Um, Partly my work with the San Francisco Opera as a teaching artist. I was seeing really fantastic operas being created by kids in classrooms. And also a long-time dream of starting a children's theatre company. My background is also as a playwright, where everything was created by kids. Mm -hmm. And sort of the mashup of that became Little Opera. the Little Opera Company? Why not the Little Musical Theatre Company? It's not like the kids are singing with tons of vibrato or all aspiring to be the next Pavarotti or Giorgio, for example. Yeah, none of them are. Um, We don't have any speaking and we we think about it as an opera. We work with really, really big emotions. We work with it through composed. The whole thing is music. And we really are trying to teach the kids about that particular art form. I think kids are usually pretty familiar with musical theater, but mm-hmm. they haven't really been exposed to opera. And what is it about singing? They, you just, the kids just really love to sing? Yeah, kids are singing all the time. Half okay. the time when they're not supposed to and they're just <laughs> singing something in their head. So how many students are currently enrolled on the program and and has it grown a lot since you've started? It's grown a bit. This year we have 14 students, uh, two classes of seven. So we have two different operas being created that both take place in Candyland. And last year we had nine students in Mm. one class. So it started last year as a program? Yes. Okay. And and what's the relationship between the Little Opera Company and the local schools? Um, Still feeling that out. Not totally sure. We're operating at West Portal. as an independent after-school program right. using space there. Yeah. So you're not a, a program that's specifically affiliated with schools. You're you're an after-school program, right? Independently run. Yeah. How do you go about funding the project? That's in the process of figuring out as well. Right now, we have a few students who pay uh, sliding scale tuition. We also have a lot of individual donors, and we have a lot of people donating their time. I see. Okay. So at one point in the story we just heard, you talked about your interest in making kids theatre with kids rather than adult theatre with kids. Tell us a little bit more about what you meant by that statement. I think a lot of times when adults try to write for children, with a few exceptions, they tend to think about children as an other and a lesser than. And kids are operating on a level that few of us who don't work with kids all the time really know what that is. And it's not uh, its not what we think of as childish. Kids are very deep thinkers. They go to very dark places. They're fascinated by very serious and, frankly, 
complex subjects. And so I think when kids make art for them for other kids, it turns out to look really differently than adults making art for children. Okay. Ruth, as the head of the San Francisco Opera programs, you work with children, college students, families and adults. What would you say are the main differences between how the company approaches educating adults about opera versus educating children? Uh, we're actually are interested in where are those similarities. And um, I mean, of course, we're not going to ask the kids to do or the adults to do as many kind of silly games as we do with our students, our young students that we work with. But we really want uh, all of our programs to have an interactive element. Mm -hmm. And that is something that we have we've wanted to do with our K to 12 programs and university programs and family programs and adult programs as a common element. Mm -hmm. Graham, have you observed any radical differences between the way uh, adults approach singing education versus children in your research? I think the critical uh, difference is that, um, as was intimated, that, that, that children are singing all the time anyway. Um, <clears throat> it's only when you actually ask them, you suddenly realize that there are all of these um, songs that are actually kind of going round mm -hmm. um, inside their heads. <laughs> um, they, they are wonderfully imaginative, and they don't realise that there's a there's a problem. <laughs> well, we're going to get on to talking about the potential problems that we all kind of start to think about when when we get a little older um, later on in the show. Um, Ruth, what are the key arts education programmes that the San Francisco Opera covers? So we have. Um, a K-12 program, some that are very long in nature over the course of a semester or a year, and are as many as 40 visits with a class of students. And these are in public schools, um, San Francisco, and also throughout the Bay Area. Um, we also have shorter programs because the longer one isn't right for every class mm -hmm. and every teacher and every school. So we have we really provide an opportunity to meet whatever needs there are in schools. And the Opera Guild of San Francisco Opera also has uh, K-12 programs available as mm -hmm. well, so that there's a real wide choice for mm -hmm. teachers to choose from. How many schools do you reach currently? We uh, currently, in the long-term program, are in nine schools, but some of them are as many as 12 classes at a school, but some are more like three. Mm -hmm. um, and that's just a long-term program. The shorter programs and the dress rehearsal programs, um, over the course of all of those, we are meeting over 20,000. budget that the San Francisco Opera has for its education programs? So our budget currently is around uh, $650,000 and that includes for the adult programs, family programs, everything mm -hmm. that we do. And, and what percentage of that roughly is devoted to the children's stuff? Over 50% wow. is, is designated to that program. Huh. Okay, so why are large arts institutions interested in putting so much time and effort into educating children? Perhaps Graham, you'd like to jump in on that question too. Well, in terms of, of the benefits of the arts, I mean, one of the things that um, the last decade of research has shown, both 
um, uh, the research in, in the field of education, in pedagogy, and also in psychology, neuropsychology, is that there are many uh, benefits from engaging in the arts. And these particularly surface in relation to singing. Mm -hmm. So, for example, we, we know that um, when we sing, the benefits are not just in relation to, to music, but there are also physical, um, psychological, including emotional benefits, social benefits, such as uh, a sense of uh, social inclusion, a sense of belonging, a sense of being part of a community. Um, and there are educational benefits. And we're also saying that there are um, enhanced um, changes actually going on at a neurological level when children uh, engage in music and, and when they sing. And that there is then the potential for uh, transfer to other aspects of um, children's um, development. I mean, this is why um, governments around the world um, have been showing so much interest mm -hmm. in music and the power of music. But this is, I think, a fairly recent development, and it was also something people cared about uh, a long time ago, many decades ago. I mean, it seemed like a lot of music education endeavours were on the decline for a while there. I mean, I know the Metropolitan Opera Guild had this wonderful uh, Make an Opera or whatever uh, programme in its schools. And creating original opera. That's it, creating original opera. Thanks, Ruth. And I mean, that reached hundreds of schools and then the number has been sort of steadily in decline for a while um, so but it seems you're right that that music education is something that people are caring about once again but why but yeah. but what about the arts institutions I mean why isn't the onus more on the governments why are arts institutions the ones who are stepping in to take custody of this in in, in a lot of places perhaps not so much in England but certainly here in the US from a, a UK perspective, if you like, but wearing my other hat as the uh, ex-president of the International Society for Music Education, uh, which has given me a, a more kind of global uh, insight, that, that, that what we see is that the uh, messages, if you like, about the benefits are uh, not always appreciated uh, by policymakers mm. uh, at, government, at government level. The arts organizations um, have actually picked, the, picked this up, the community organizations. And this is partly also in our recognition as educators that education actually is increasingly available and high-quality education in what we are calling the non-formal sector. That is to say, not schools, but in the concert halls, the opera houses, mm. and other kind of community groups. I mean, for example, I, I recently completed a, a baseline study that was funded by the European Parliament um, of 20 uh, concert halls and opera houses across Europe. And in a 12-month period, they offered over 14,000 different activities to the public mm. and actually had participation of over 571,000 different people. Wow. And these were from babies right the way through to, to uh, people that have been long time retired. Mm -hmm. So there's an enormous amount of engagement in music within the community, but this is not always recognised by government policymakers. I see. So Ruth, um, how much do you think the San Francisco Opera's interest in these programmes is governed by a sense of our audience is dying, we need to get more bums in seats, so we are training up the next generation or the generation after the next generation to be excited about opera? How much is that a factor? That's certainly part of it. Um, we are, but we're doing those efforts not only with school children, but with adults, with families 
families mm-hmm. with young adults, so with all age groups, and that's where I think it needs to exist is mm-hmm. with with every kind of age group, not just with children. Um, but it's certainly part of it. But it was also the fact that I came here five years ago. There was not an education department of San Francisco Opera. There was the Opera Guild, um, but it was an important part of what the board was mandating for David Gockley to make happen, to have their own education department and be making their own contributions to the community Mm -hmm. through providing opera education. So the Little Opera Company exists completely outside the school system. And in, in a sense, I mean, I know you operate in a school, but you're not part of a school curriculum program. Right. Erin. Um, and then the work of the San Francisco Opera sort of seems to straddle the school and after school arenas in different ways. So let's think a bit about singing education programs that work completely within the academic structure. Graham, you've been closely involved with a wonderful British program called Sing Up, which was set up by the UK government to embed singing in schools on a daily basis as part of the regular curriculum. Can you give us please a quick overview of the program, You know why it was created, what it aimed to achieve and, and what it involved? Well, I, I think um, it, it grew out of a concern um, at the uh, beginning of the decade uh, that there was um, uh, enormous variability in the music uh, experiences of children uh, each week, not just in school, but, but, but also outside school. Yet there was this emerging evidence that music actually had value, not just as music, but also uh, for other aspects of development. And uh, there was a large, uh, very significant media campaign in the UK led by a, a famous um, compo- uh, conductors uh, like uh, Simon Rattle um, that actually said, you know, something needs to be done. And as a result of that, there was a, a kind of lobby, if you like, across the music industry, in- including education and the media. Um, that there was a a need for a a shift of policy. And out of this, in 2004, two ministries came together, very unusual in the UK, where we had education and culture actually collaborated to produce a music manifesto, which was actually saying that that, uh, music is a birthright and we need to make sure that all children have an opportunity to experience this each week. And out of that, they said, well, the the simplest way that we can make music available is through singing, through Mm -hmm. children using their voices, using the instrument that they carry around with them. Um, And I was involved in in the initial design of the program and then in evaluating it over five years from 2007 to 2012. By the end of of, uh, 2012, it, uh, the program was being taken up by 95% of the primary schools across England. That is to say, 95% of 17,000 schools. That's remarkable. And 90, 95% of 4.2 million children were uh-huh. actually getting some singing experiences. Every day? Quite a few of them were getting it every day, but, but uh, they were getting a quality experience at least once a week. Uh-huh. And, uh, I mean, the government put an enormous amount of money into this. This was uh, uh, $44 million in pounds, wow. so that must be, what, $60 million, uh, U.S. Yeah. dollars? Something like that, at least, I think, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and so it was an enormous kind of government commitment, but when you broke it down to the amount of money per child, it was just 
in dollar terms, the equivalent of a few dollars per child per year. Mm-hmm. You, know, you know, so, I mean, it was a tiny, tiny sum of money for the potential benefits, not just in terms of music, but children's physical health, uh, their emotional mm-hmm. health, and, and also the possibility of, of, of other aspects, such as reading and verbal ability mm-hmm. and being you, enhanced. And you, me- you measured all of those things? I mean, you had sort of tangible results about the, the positive effects that came out of this uh, period when Sing Up was nationwide and everyone, or 95% of the schools were doing it? Yes, that, that's right, yes. I mean, the, one of the interesting things is, is that when we had the new coalition government that came in, that decided, like most other governments, that there wasn't any money. Um, and the, the national program that they had been funding previously, the previous government had funded, the Sing-Up program then became a, a kind of commercial company, mm. uh, a not-for-profit company, owned by, by some of the original people that had put it together. Um, since uh, if that new um, formation has taken place, which was last April, um, as of two weeks ago, 5,000 schools in England uh, were actually taking out um, an annual subscription to continue to be part of this programme. That's, that's great news, because, I mean, now the, the, the schools have to pay. It's no longer free. That's right, yes. But, but the schools still actually see that there's a benefit in it. And, mm-hmm. and this is going up by hundreds of schools um, each month. Uh There seems to be a a kind of wider recognition that that singing and children singing is is a benefit, not just to the school community, but also to the wider community, Mm -hmm. which is something else that's that's begun to be uh, uh, explored and and evaluated, is is that those schools that actually engage more in music um, are seen as actually putting something back into the local community itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the wonderful things about the Sing Up program that I was able to to glean from from my viewpoint here in the US is this fantastic web portal that that's been developed over all these years, and with incredibly rich and diverse songs that um, yeah. teachers can download, and um, and also it's not just the songs. There are all these different rehearsal tracks, and there are songs for warming up, and uh, and songs that can be affiliated with different kinds of academic curricula. Here's an example of one of the songs that the kids enrolled in the Sing Up program have been performing as part of it. Here's "Ain't No Mountain High Enough." On tonight's edition of Voicebox, I'm chatting on the phone with Graham Welch, Professor and Chair of Music Education at the Institute of Education, University of London. And in the studio with me are Ruth Knott, the Director of Education at San Francisco Opera, and Erin Bregman, the founder of the Little Opera Company, a Bay Area-based organisation that creates opera productions from scratch with kids aged 6 to 10. 
We just heard an example of a song from the UK's Sing Up programme, an initiative to get children all over England singing in the schools. The programme's vast web portal has amazing resources for the classroom, including a massive song bank. This arrangement of Ain't No Mountain High Enough by Ashford and Simpson is just one song that the children in the UK are performing as part of the programme. You know, it's interesting to me that the Sing Up website seems to be only usable by people in the UK. You you can't be abroad and sign up as far as I can see, which I mean, it's, it's sort of a shame. It seems like why not? Why not make the resource available to, to start, you know, for now to schools yeah. and abroad to just dip their toes in and try it? I think that's absolutely right. And the, the, the commercial company, if you like, that, that's now running uh, Sing Up, um, are looking into actually having international members mm. because they, they see that this is slightly crazy that they've got this wonderful web resource of, of over 500 um, songs in the song bank, for example, um, that they're adding to uh, every few months, uh, which up to now has been owned and funded by the government. Um, who are not particularly interested in, 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 in uh, using it, but are very interested in making sure that other people use it. It is an international resource, and I, I think uh, it makes, as you said, a great deal of sense for other people around the world to have access to it. Mm-hmm. There are some really wonderful things in that song bank. Um, I had a lot of fun looking at some of the, and listening to some of the warm-up tracks, for example, um, and the way in which that, the tracks can be selected to be inputted into other parts of the curriculum teaching on other subjects like history or maths. I thought we could just hear now an example of a warm-up track from the Sing Up Song Bank, which is also supposed to help with math skills and improve children's focus. We'll hear the track as a melody only first. Um, this is what the kids in the schools practice with. And then we'll hear a more advanced version of the track being done as a round when they get really expert. One, one, two, one, one, two, three, two, one. I really love that. <laughs> it's really, it's so simple and it's so beautiful, but I guess it probably teaches a lot of really great lessons and you have to focus so hard to make sure you're seeing the right it's number at the right time. Yes. It's really, really difficult. Actually, um, one of the other teaching artists at the opera taught that, taught that to us. And I recently, actually yesterday, during a little opera class, we had somebody come in and was singing with us and they had a different version of, like a variation on that where every time you get to four, you clap oh. instead. And that is difficult. <laughs> <laughs> so I'd love to hear your views about getting kids to sing songs and make music for its own sake versus this business of linking the singing activities to other parts of the curriculum, you know, linking it in with a math lesson, for example. What, what are your views on that? I mean, I think ideally it's both. Ideally, it's both that you're getting music and other arts in school and also that you have the opportunity out of school. I think the best education, you're getting to experience it as much as possible. You're getting to experience it in humanities kind of way where you are making those links, um, but also that you're getting to really practice your skills in those art in the arts. Oh, 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 oh. 
The Pacific Boy Choir Academy, performing Cum Sancto Spiritu from Bach's Mass in G minor. Based in Oakland, the Pacific Boy Choir Academy is one of the most polished children's and youth vocal ensembles in the United States. You're listening to Voice Box with me, Chloe Veltman. We're exploring the latest frontiers of singing education for children with three experts working in the space. Graham Welch, who's joining us on the phone from England and is with the Institute of Education at London University. Ruth Knott, head of the San Francisco Opera's education programmes and the founder and director of the Little Opera Company, Erin Bregman. So choruses have, of course, long been a staple of children's musical education. Ruth, your education programmes at the opera sometimes involve collaborations with the top local children's choirs, like the one we heard just now, um, the uh, Pacific Boy Choir Academy, and also the San Francisco Girls and Boys Choirs I know are involved with the San Francisco Opera. Can you tell us about the nature of these partnerships and what impact they have on the children you work with as a whole? Yes, in our long-term program, the students are learning skills in singing, learning skills in theater, learning skills in production design, all of the elements of opera and and writing, of course. Um, but a big part of that is is singing. And you have to sing what you've written, <laughs> both your text and your composition. Uh-huh. Um, so th- really throughout the whole course of the program, we are building singing skills. And one of the ways we really feel it's important for young people because that's not been part of their education in such a strong way in the past, one of the ways that we feel it's important to introduce singing to them and show them how good it really can be and what it really sounds like when it's great is is bringing these other really wonderful choruses into their school giving them a chance to see that these are kids, you know, either their age or not much older than them, that are just performing extraordinarily well. Mm-hmm. Well, a question for perhaps you, Erin. Um, what are the advantages of having the kids create music they're going to sing themselves rather than working on pre-existing material as most choirs tend to do? I think it's great to let kids know that they can compose and that they can create their own music. Because a lot of... Uh, I grew up as a classical guitarist and I have never once, I played guitar pretty seriously for over 20 years and I never created my own piece once. Mm -hmm. Um, But I learned to play a lot of really advanced repertoire and that was just not part of my music education. And so to have that be what kids are learning from the very beginning is just opens up this whole other set of tools and opens up a new world of Mm -hmm. making new work. I see. So probably having both sides is important. Ruth? Yeah, I just wanted to comment on that too because I think the kids are then going to compose music they can perform. Mm-hmm. I, I think sometimes when, as we've been talking about before, an adult writes a piece for kids, it's not necessarily appropriate for them, mm-hmm. always. I see. Yeah. Well, another point about uh, the way you're working, Erin, and um, and in fact, probably some of the programs too, Ruth, that you, you run, is that the children, they're creating music from scratch, and in it's this operatic idea, but unlike traditional operas where there are lots of solo arias, most of the singing that the kids are doing is in groups, right? Absolutely. Yeah, so why, why is that? Singing alone is scary. <laughs> and uh, there's, there's safety in numbers and singing with other people is a lot of fun. Kids also have very little voices. And so for practical reasons of being heard, mm-hmm. it's nice to have more than one voice on a part. I yep. see. Graham, is there something you wanted to add? Well, yeah, yeah, just from a psychoacoustic point of view, what happens is that when you have uh, several voices coming together, you actually get a combination of uh, harmonics which are not there in any of the individual voices. So Mm -hmm. it's the 
uh, the chorus becomes a mathematical equivalent of two plus two equals five. Uh-huh. <laughs> so this business of self-consciousness creeping in, as it seems to do with a lot of people at a certain age, at what stage of their development do kids get self-conscious and embarrassed about singing, even in groups? Fourth grade. Well, Erin <laughs> says fourth grade. Graham, do you have other other thoughts about that? I what happens is is that uh, children, when they they begin to get a sense of self-identity, so it's around about uh, often around about the age of seven, eight. And by the time that they enter um, adolescence, they have very strong preferences about certain kinds of music, music they like, and music that they see as their music, and music that they dislike, which they feel as well as really alien to them. And that uh, informs, if you like, shapes their identity. But they're also aware that that, that, um, people can be quite critical about their voices. So the research that we've done with adults, for example, in Newfoundland, um, in relation to those adults in their 60s, 70s and 80s, who have not sung for 50 or 60 years, they can remember as if it was yesterday, the comments from peers, from relatives, Mm. from uh, friends, about their singing ability or apparent disability. And from that moment onwards, they have not sung, believing that they are singing disabled. Mm. You know, unfortunately, it's one of the challenges that we have in singing education mm. is that we have to convince uh, that sometimes even people that know a lot about music that it's possible that everybody can do it. So how do you go about doing that? How do you get over this whole self-consciousness thing? How can it be avoided or worked through? Well, when in our partnerships, well, it's also a lot with teachers who yeah. grew up um, in the 70s when... Or, or later after the sco- after the arts were pulled out of schools. Mm-hmm. So they didn't even get a chance to try it in a mm-hmm. lot of times, or they were those people that had that horrible thing happen to them where their teacher told them to not sing uh, because yeah. they can't. But, you know, so it's, it's about, you know, then working with these adults and you just have to do it together in groups. It's the same kind of mm-hmm. idea with the mm-hmm. way it's successful with kids is that they're performing together. They're mm-hmm. singing together. Yeah. They realize, oh, wow, I really can do that because they're, they're not. And you have to create a safe environment. For and, them. Then, and then because the teachers get comfortable singing, then that means the kids are comfortable. Sorry, Erin, yeah, you no, want I was just going to add to that and say that I think part of the creation really adds a uh, a level of motivation that's not there when you're when you're learning somebody else's music because if it's music that you've written and you know exactly how it goes and you're really into it the kids mm-hmm. are going to sing without even realizing that they should be embarrassed mm-hmm. to sing it because they're so excited to share what they've done yeah it's a great point graham you've done some interesting research that you mentioned to me the other day on how the age at which kids start singing affects their skills and attitudes towards it can you uh, tell us a little bit about that research we uh, recorded um, the individual uh, singing behaviour of 13,000 children across England. Oh, and what we discovered was that those children that uh, inside the programme tended to be more advanced than those outside. But if we go back one, one step, all children um, improve in their singing ability just by having opportunities to do it. So that in uh, Western societies, we might expect, for example, that around 40% of seven-year-olds in the U.S. 
uh, in anywhere in, in one of the developed worlds, uh, developed countries such as Japan and the, and the UK, Germany, wherever, you would expect about 40% of seven-year-olds to have some difficulty in what you, you might call carrying a tune, singing in tune. Mm-hmm. But this percentage drops down to three or four percent by the time the children are aged 11. That is to say, it, it singing and becoming an accomplished singer is a developmental process. Some children have had lots of rich singing experiences before they actually get into school, usually, the American researchers, because they've had mum singing to them. Mm. And if they enter school as an accomplished, relatively accomplished singer at the age of five, it's because they've already had successful singing experiences. Some haven't had that rich experience, and so teachers then have to work with however the children are to enable them to develop more. And what we find is, is that those children that were part of the Sing Up program uh, are two years on average in advance of their singing. But the youngest children, aged five, were three years in advance. Mm-hmm. So if you can actually get in there as early as possible, you can make a real difference, which not doesn't just last through childhood, but is actually lifelong. <laughs> listening to Voicebox with me, Chloe Veltman. For full playlist information for tonight's show, please visit voicebox-media.org. And you can also download the podcast version of this programme and indeed any other show from the Voicebox series from our website. And please friend us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. On tonight's show about music education for kids, I'm in the studio with the San Francisco Opera's education director, Ruth Knott, and Erin Bregman, who runs the Little Opera Company, an after-school programme in which children make opera productions from scratch. And music education researcher Graham Welch is joining us on the phone from the UK. We just heard a children's choir from Venezuela's famous El Sistema programme performing a bulerengue, a folk music style from the Caribbean region of Colombia and the Darien province in Panama. Now, no discussion of music education is complete these days, it seems, without talking about Elsie Stemmer. But when people discuss this incredible nationwide initiative to train young musicians that has gone international, they usually focus on the kids that play violins, trumpets and other orchestral instruments. Hardly anyone pays attention to the fact that Elsie Stemmer has an amazing vocal music education programme. So I'd like to ask my three guests why you think that's the case. I heard somebody say that it's not as impressive to see a kid with their mouth open than a kid playing a cello. Hmm. Okay. That's pretty much it, I think. <laughs> but of course, that's uh, it needs it much easier to create a chorus because you don't have to deal with instruments. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, it's a huge advantage in a way, isn't For it? Sure. Having a singing program. Yeah. Graham, what have, have you, is there anything you've noticed about the, the way El Sistema has spread in terms of its vocal education? No, it, I think that's right. The, the, the vocal side of it tends to be downplayed. It, the, it's the instrumental side, I think mainly because 
um, there's a, some kind of assumption that, that you know, the singing is relatively simple, hmm. um, at, at least for a lot of people, uh, but playing a musical instrument is somehow really quite complex and requires hmm. tens of thousands of hours of, of dedicated practice to, to be accomplished. And to see uh, young players actually a, a, achieving uh, musical excellence is somehow a, much more of a kind of headline grabber, as someone has, has just said, you know, th mm. than uh, having a, a wonderful children's chorus in front of you. Mm. Um, do any of you think that there's a case to be made to change that and, and what could be done to change that perception? Well, I can only give you an example from the UK. I've just started evaluating an L-Sistema equivalent program, which in the UK is called In Harmony. Mm -hmm. Uh, and it's uh, happening in, in a, a, a primary school in the north of England where all of the children um, from age five uh, up to 11 are learning a stringed instrument. And also all the teachers, uh, the teaching assistants, uh, helpers, and also the head teacher, everybody's learning. Um, but because this is a program that's being run by Opera North uh, in the UK, um, the children are also getting... Um, a very strong, uh, coherent uh, vocal program mm. alongside this as well. So I, I think just from that example, it, it probably depends on who's doing the organizing and whether they have got uh, vocal music uh, as part of their own culture, part of their own history. Mm. Well, I mean, I for one would like to see more emphasis placed on the on the El Sistema vocal programs. I mean, I think it's very telling, for example, that that on on iTunes you can buy several recordings from the Simon Bolivar Orchestra, which is the top tier El Sistema orchestra. It tours internationally, but I couldn't find a single Simon Bolivar choir recording. And in fact, it's <laughs> you know, and they only recently did their first international tour too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's just not being aware also that it's equally rigorous. What I do, you know me, young B, I can guess a freestyle any day of the week, yeah, I can guess it, you know what I'm passing, yeah, I'm gon' pass it, foot quick, like gymnastic, boy, you know fake like plastic, boy, you know you fake like plastic. We just heard a sample of spontaneous rap from a kid who's working with Today's Future Sound, a program based in Oakland that creates hip-hop tracks with children. Like your program, Erin, today's Future Sound is one I found out about through the fundraising landscape. I initially read about both programs on the website of the Awesome Foundation, which is a nationwide initiative which provides modest amounts of quick turnaround funding for great project ideas proposed by community-based organisations. And this brings me to the final area that I'd like to touch on this evening uh, for our exploration of the children's singing education landscape, funding and sustainability. These are two of the biggest challenges facing schools, governments and arts service providers in creating and continuing with innovative singing education programs inside and outside of schools. How easy, Ruth, is it to sell singing education to San Francisco Opera's big donors? 
Well, a lot of them will actually are only interested in giving to the education department. Um, So because of having started this new department five years ago, it has opened some new doors to some additional funding. Um, However, in the landscape that we're in right now uh, with our economy still being an issue, we have had fewer and fewer foundations that have been and been able to contribute as mm-hmm. they have in the past. So you're relying more and more on, on, on individual more, donors. Mm-hmm. Right, mm. right. Erin, what, what about your situation? It sounded from what you said earlier that you're really running uh, your program, Little Opera Company, more or less on a shoestring at the moment. Definitely on a shoestring at the moment. What are your plans for developing in the future in terms of fundraising? That is a very good question. Um, I, I think certainly seeing what what happens with many arts organizations, I want to be very careful about not being dependent on um, grants completely to fund us because I know that that's a fickle source of income. I, I I'm not sure. There's one one for profit idea that I've that I've been kicking around with some friends of of uh, taking advantage of the startup landscape in the Bay Area and going into new startups and and creating a new piece of music with them that we then turn into a music video that basically is a pitch for their company. Hmm. Uh, Working with the kids to do that? I don't know. It's it's like this, uh, like the beginning of a baby idea. Well, I think it's a very interesting baby idea. So we'll see. Hopefully we'll have lots of those and one of them will click. Fantastic. Well, I, that, I wish you a lot of luck with that idea. Thank you. We'll need I it. mean, I think the startups <laughs> should be paying attention to this because, you know, why not? Actually, I read an article today... Um, in the San Francisco Chronicle, I think it was, um, about how uh, all the tech companies in the Bay Area are, a lot of the, the, not the companies, but the rich people who founded them are all getting into spending a lot of money on fine art and developing their fine art collections. Oh, that's great. Yeah, it is. Um, but I think there's somewhat more of a challenge in persuading these people in the Bay Area who have a lot of money to donate to performing arts. It's it, Somehow, it doesn't seem to be as easy. I don't know if either of you want to say anything about that or maybe Graham you have thoughts too about performing arts versus visual arts in terms of getting funding I think the um, <clears throat> the challenge as far as we, everybody is concerned is is the power of advocacy really mm-hmm. it, it, it's, it's having these I mean my experience in international experience is that it, if people hear stories that actually touch them at a personal level then they are more prepared to kind of go that extra mile to to find some way to help you, whether this is a, a local government, a, a regional or national government, or a big uh, a multinational company, or um, <clears throat> just your your local business one. The, the, I think what we've we've got to be better at is is just being much stronger advocates. And as you know, that most of my professional life is spent not just gathering uh, evidence, uh, empirical data about um, singing, but also in in then looking at the hard, kind of harder questions as what what is the impact? Mm. Because the people that control the, the the funding, they want to know that they are actually going to have a make a major difference, if you like, by 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 giving funds. And I do think the evidence is there. You've got some wonderful research uh, uh, emerging in the United States. And you've also got, as we, we heard this evening, uh, people like, like uh, Ruth and Erin, I mean, just doing absolutely fantastic work in the community. It's just getting all of this out 
so that people understand what a huge difference they are already making in people's lives. Well, well said. And uh, that's about all we have time for this week. So I'd like to thank my wonderful guests, Ruth, Erin and Graham, for joining me in the studio and on the phone. It's been so terrific chatting with you all. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Cheers. My pleasure. To find out more about the Little Opera Company, please visit littleopera.org. And the San Francisco Opera's website, sfopera.org, has lots of information about its education efforts. And find out more about Graham Welch at ioe.ac.uk. That's ioe.ac.uk. Voicebox is an independently produced non-profit project recorded at the studios of KLW in San Francisco. Today's special report about the Little Opera Company was produced by Rachel Hamburg. The series producer is Seth Samuel and the web editor is Victoria Lim. And Greta Bosal is our development director. Please support Voicebox. We're a non-profit project, so all donations made to us, whether online or via cheque, are tax deductible. Visit voicebox-media.org to find out how you can keep innovative, in-depth coverage of the vocal arts thriving. And we invite you to connect with us on Twitter and Facebook. And if you're looking for me on Twitter, my handle is at Chloe Veltman. Finally, if you're listening in the Bay Area or can get here, I have a couple of great upcoming live events to plug. Voicebox is partnering with Street Stage to present a live urban music experience featuring some wonderful vocal artists. Come and join us on Valencia Street in the Mission between 18th and 19th Streets this Sunday, March the 10th, between 12 noon and 4 p.m. Also, May 29th sees the return of drinking songs, a night of beer and the music that goes with it. Join Voicebox, Dogfish Head Brewery and the Philistines Men's Vocal Ensemble at 50 Mason Social House in downtown San Francisco for a unique interactive exploration of the relationship between beer culture and song culture. More details, including how to buy tickets to this unforgettable interactive event, can be found at voicebox-media.org. I'll play us out with a track from a group of New Jersey grade fivers who are creating an opera from scratch as part of the Metropolitan Opera Guild's Creating an Original Opera program that we mentioned earlier in the show. Their efforts are being turned into a documentary right now by Max Sturm and Joseph Alessi of 60.46 Productions. The documentary is titled Opera Kids. The track we're going to play is called I Warned You. Have a songful week. Do you hear me? I told you to stop. I told you.